Welcome to Ad Hoc History. It's not the podcast you wanted, but it's the podcast you deserve. That's right. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. What's going on, Luxa? Hey, what's up, Asher? How you doing, dude? I am doing good. I'm glad to be back here. Yeah, so this is weird. We're recording a much earlier than we typically do in terms of what time of day it is. It is weird. The, the sun is out. And yeah, it's very strange. I'm not my drunk. My aura is all... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, there's plenty of time. <laughs> there's this plenty might be a long episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What are we even talking about today? I don't even know. We are going to be talking about Josephus and the Roman Jewish War. Okay, cool. So we're we're headed back to ancient Rome. Now, is this like before or after where we were before we were talking you know, about like the decline and fall of rome before like where are we situated in relation to that all right so our story is actually going to start in bc and we are going to actually see an old friend pompey the great pompey magnus is going to oh, show pompey. up in this yeah before the bad times we're going to see some of the good times of pompey um, and then we're going to kind of get into the first century when the stuff gets down and so most of this is going to be happening in around 66 AD, during the reign of the Emperor Nero. And um, a lot of climactic things happening in Rome, while this big war is also happening in the Middle East. All right. Crazy times. Yeah. All right. So first of all, you know, so our source for this is a man by the name of Josephus. And he also has a Hebrew name and a Roman name. And his Roman name is Titus Flavius Josephus. Um, this is a very regal name, it turns out. Uh, Titus is the name of the emperor, and jo uh, Flavius is his family name. And so basically, Josephus has a, basically a surname given to him by one of the emperors. Uh, like, he is a member of his family. So well, that's pretty dope, yeah. Josephus is a Jewish historian who is basically captured by Rome during the course of this war. And he ends up working with them as a translator. And many people would say a traitor. And he goes back to with Rome after the war and becomes the emperor Vespasian and his son Titus. He becomes their personal kind of scribe. And he writes this, this book, the Jewish war about the, you know, the Roman exploits in Judea and about this, you know, heroic victory that his, you know, his master and his master's son had, had won over his people. And so, like, this is a very complicated and problematic uh, book because it's written by a Jewish, you know, some would say patriot who is, has been basically enslaved by the Romans and yet has been Romanized himself. He is very much kind of a man in two worlds. Um, yeah, that is really fascinating. Um, do we know, like, from a cultural standpoint, how much this how much pressure was put on people to romanize like is it sort of like you can be like us or you can fuck off or is it like hey do you want to be like us that would be cool i mean like how much i don't know i'm trying to get a feel for like how much choice this dude had you know i think in his his case is a little bit more complicated and we'll get into his background and some of his you know his life story and um he was very much a hellenistic jew and We'll get into that too, but, you know, so the, the Greeks had, you know, after Alexander had conquered the Middle East, they left behind this, this Hellenism, which was like a, a melding of traditional Eastern thought with this new Greek, um, Greek thought. 
and the emphasis on humanity and practicality and stuff like that. And so during the Hellenistic, you know, Middle East, you had these ancient peoples like the Jews getting along with these people like the Greeks. And you kind of had this new proto-culture that kind of evolved from that. And it's just kind of called the Hellenistic world. And so there were all these Jews that were Hellenized and, 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 you know, Roman Rome's just copied the Greek culture, you know, their, their culture is basically just a complete rip off of the, of the Greeks. They basically assimilated to Greek culture. And so when I say Hellenizing, that would be basically assimilating to a similar culture as that Rome did. Rome, Rome was Hellenistic. That okay. makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Hell yeah. Okay. So let's just get into a little bit of the background on the Jews and these are very interesting people. Um, so at this time, now our, our narrative is going to start at 167 BC at, at something called the Maccabean revolt. And uh, just a little bit more background on the religion though. So, and the, the nation, you know, so the first temple, the temple of Solomon was supposedly built in 900 BC. So this is already, you know, 800 years after that, you know, so there are already a very ancient people at this time. Um, they've been around for quite a while and they can trace even, you know, their, their lineage into these kind of mythic, these mythic kind of cloudy areas of the Bronze Age. Or, you know, yeah, like the I was going to say there's all kinds of fun mythology surrounding Solomon that you can find if you're like into uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, <that's>... spooky shit. <laughs> <laughs> and like the Jewish texts that were, you know, written in Babylon, like the, the Torah and stuff. Those are not historical documents. And I think a lot of people would like them to be and would like to look at them as historical documents, but they're really religious documents that are meant for religious purposes. So while they do talk about things that happened in the past, they're not really reliable as a historical source, but they are interesting and they kind of inform kind of, you know, the the worldview of the Jews. And eventually, so basically this is kind of how it happened. We don't really know where they came from, but they end up in... Um, you know, in the Middle East, in Canaan, and they're fighting, they're conquering this area from the people that were there before them, the Philistines. And eventually they drive them out. They, you know, King Solomon builds the temple and they have this kingdom. And it lasts until a few hundred years until the Babylonians come in and um, and basically just, just, they destroy the temple of Solomon and they take the, the Jewish people back to Babylon as, as slaves. And I'm not sure how long they are in Babylon, but Cyrus the Great, another name that, you know, from the Herodotus episode, Cyrus takes out Babylon and he frees the Jews and he sends his, his emissary Ezra to rebuild the temple for the Jews and kind of get them back on their feet. And so this is the second temple period. So one thing about this religion is that it's very unique that it only has one temple. You know, the pagan world, their powers they felt came from these idols, you know, so you'd have to build all these title idols and, and temples for, for these, for these gods, these deities. And, when the pagans would talk with these Jews, they couldn't really understand what they were talking about. This invisible God. And there's just, it didn't really make sense. You know? like, it, what the fuck? The gods are like us. Right. And the, the Jews were like, no, no, it's like this thing you can't even imagine. So <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And, you know, I think it, a lot of people, uh, a lot of pagans felt that the Jews were kind of antisocial and even misanthropic and they had these unnecessarily harsh laws of entry into their religion and some people even <laughs> yeah like so like you know the main one circumcision obviously but there's also but, all these dietary laws and yeah and and actually it's interesting how many of these things have been adopted into like common practice in the modern era anyway absolutely yeah i have a good little quote from uh, saint augustine they'll get to you later 
But so, yeah, so the Jews have this idea that their holy temple is where heaven touches earth. Okay. And it's this magical place and it's like a mystery. There's like this, this mystery, this, it's called the holiest of holies. Mm -hmm. And it's this hidden chamber in the temple. And that's where the pagans thought that that's where their idol was. They just didn't want to tell anybody what it was. Like, <laughs> they must have the best fucking idol. It's hidden back there. <laughs> must be and the we want to know what it is. <laughs> we got <it. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> But no one is know. allowed to go back there. So it's a sacerdotal religion, meaning it has a high priestly caste. And they are the ones who go back there. I think it's just one high priest even. Um, from my readings about like, I don't know, again, this is not from a strictly historical standpoint. This is more just in the, the interests, my own uh, spiritual interests and stuff like reading about that stuff um, from the standpoint of like occultism and stuff. It's sure. yeah, there's all kinds of interesting theories about what it might have been. <laughs> and also you can see some of these types of theories on shows like ancient aliens. Yeah, really absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, who knows? We're still no, actually, speculating. <laughs> we, we will get to somebody who goes in there in a, a little bit later. Okay. Um, but so, yeah, that's just kind of a background on the religion. And so, you know, just like like when Jesus was going to Jerusalem to make his Passover dinner, he was there to sacrifice at the temple. Like, so this was the only place that you're allowed to sacrifice to God and only the priests know how to do it right. And so like once it, in your lifetime, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, very convenient. <laughs> once in your lifetime, you'd have to go there and, and put up with all their bullshit and, um, you know, and do your thing. So, yeah, just a little bit more on the on the religion there. Now, one thing about you know, we get to the Roman period, and one thing that has hasn't really been understood, I think, by a lot of people is that there was actually a lot of things really popular about Judaism, and it was kind of a competing faith um, against a lot of the pagan religions, and it, it brought things like this afterlife to the table, where the pagan afterlife just was like howling in some abyss somewhere or in, <laughs> walking in a field, you know, like. Like the Jews had this great afterlife and they had this God that would listen directly to you and it would judge the wicked and, and, you know, reward the faithful. And it was kind of like this moral interpretation that, yeah, even if our lot sucks in this life, well, we're not really concerned with this life. We're concerned with the next life. And so people in the Roman world that have basically no hope and are just enslaved, you know, you could see how this could be a popular kind of alternate uh, philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Um, many critics of uh, philosophies that espouse an afterlife have called it the perfect religion for slaves, you know, right? Like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what Nietzsche, Nietzsche's whole thing. And he, I didn't really want to bring him up. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he yeah, he goes back to this mentality <laughs> with the, the, of the Jews. And, but so it was kind of like a competing religion. But, you know, like I said earlier, they, the, the price of entry was just so high that people thought it was unfair. That like you have this great religion, you have this great gods. Like why can't we just join it? And and also why are you being so rude to us? Like why won't you sit down and eat with us? And we can't even go to your feast, and you refuse to come to our feasts. Like <laughs> I mean, they were just yeah. yeah. You could <laughs> see why that would be like what the fuck, guys? Like it don't you want to be friends yeah. with us? <laughs> and like you know the pagans were all about enjoying life. At least a lot of them were, you know, and the the very sensuous and luxurious you know life is meant to be enjoyed and uh how how horrible what a horrible fucking thing to believe <laughs> the jews well at least a lot of the jews were you know it wasn't so much that they didn't enjoy life they had their own feasts and stuff and they're always partying and shit it's just that they wouldn't let any anybody else yeah. come and join yeah no for sure i was gonna say like the the jewish like 
holiday things that I've gone to have been like a lot of wine gets drank yeah. and people seem to have a really good time. Dancing, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know how it was back in the day. <laughs> so obviously things are probably pretty different now. So I don't, I don't probably, know. Probably. Yeah. That, that one thing that should be said is, you know, our modern view on Judaism is, you know, very meek kind of scholarly people. This is these guys were very different. This is oh yeah, yeah. In the ancient world, they were very warlike people, uh, very feisty, <laughs> very yeah, hard an- to another, deal with. Another yeah, tribe yeah. of angry desert folks, right? Like, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, but they brought a lot to the table too. With um, and anyway, so just like there really was a cultural difference between the pagans, at least the authorities, and the Jewish people, and it was really hard for the pagans to understand them and. It really kind of was a gulf. But one thing about the Romans is that they were very kind of um, accommodating to religion. They would usually just, the people they would conquer, they'd usually have similar gods. And they would oftentimes just incorporate some of the conquered gods into their pantheon. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is really common for like a lot of, you know, societies that are, you know, conquerors that they'll, it's called synchro, synchro- Syncretization. I'm sorry. That's all right. Syncretization. Synchro- Religious synchronism. There we are. Um, <laughs> we got there. <laughs> I think like I think there's three Roman gods they got from the Gaul, the the Gaelic tribes. Um, one of them, I believe, is called Apana, the god of the horse from Zelda. The, the name of your horse in Zelda. Okay. Yeah, isn't that cool? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting major nostalgia now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so with the Jews, you couldn't do that, you know? And, you know, mm-hmm. you can't incorporate this God. It, it, it wasn't compatible. And you can't even draw a picture of it. You couldn't draw a picture of it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's so, like, if you can't have an idol, how can you worship it? Like, you can't even fucking see it. How do you, like, anyway, so, but Romans, you know, they had a thing where they wanted you to, you know, have a statue of the emperor and, you know, you know, every once in a while, you know, come and worship and pay some tribute Let's to do the emperor. a little state. light <laughs> yeah. God worship of our ruler. Little, yeah, just a little. Yeah, just a little bit. Just kisses, but a little bit. The Jews would not do it. They just were, they just pissed and moaned about it. And so finally, the well, Romans were like, fine, you don't have to do it. We're going to make a fucking exception for you guys. You don't have to do it. So they actually got a lot of oh, exceptions. Oh, shit. Okay. Because <laughs> the Romans didn't take religion that seriously. You know? It, it, yeah. Gibbon talks about that, right? Yeah. And then here we have the Jews. They're, they're taking it very seriously. But um, Yeah, they're super into it. <laughs> so that's a little bit of the the background of, you know, the two cultures and how they, they really were very different. Um, but anyway, so let's pick up here in the Hellenistic period at 167 BC with the Maccabean Revolt. And so prior to this, you know, uh, the Middle East had been conquered. The Persian Empire had been conquered by Alexander. And we are actually going to talk about him in a near episode. Um, But so after the Greeks had dispatched the Persians, they stayed and they kind of melded with the local uh, cultures. And so you had, you know, Persian and Babylonian and Assyrian and not Assyrian, but, uh, you know, Scythian and Phoenician and Egyptian and Jewish and so the pl- the people that stayed in these particular regions, you know, so Ptolemy stayed in Egypt. He became the pharaoh and started, you know, worship, you know, doing Egyptian culture. And, you know, the- Seleucia is the guy who stayed in Mesopotamia. And he was one of Ale- Alexander's generals. Seleucid, I think his name was actually. And he started the Seleucid dynasty, which is this Greek dynasty 
that ruled the Middle East, Syria, Israel, Judea, Mesopotamia area for a few hundred years and a very powerful uh, dynasty. Uh, so within G- within Jewish civilization at this time, you're getting all this new stuff from the Greeks. And except the Jews are already an ancient people at this time. And you're getting all this great new thought from the Greeks, this new Western thought pouring into the Middle East. And it's rejuvenating everything. And, you know, Greek logic and, and guys like Plato, you know, like these were the Jews could not get enough of this stuff. And they loved reading Plato and um, there's a lot of crossover with those philosophies, actually, right? Like, like, absolutely. oh, it's all a dream. You can't use all shadows. It's you know, yeah. absolutely, dude. I think they got a lot from Plato. Um, yeah. And this is still somewhat formative time for the newer religion because, so yeah, so after the first temple was destroyed, they go into this period of exile for a few hundred years, and then they come back and they have a new temple, and they're trying to figure things out again. You know, they're trying to restart their nation, which was destroyed basically but now they get a second chance and so we get kind of like this greek dynasty this kind of greek jewish dynasty and basically a rebellion happens in against the greek authorities and it's called the maccabean revolt and what sets this off is the seleucid dynasty the king of it antiochus the uh, the fourth outlawed the jewish religion and he did this not just because he hated the jews he did it because there was a tremendous amount of internal strife in Jewish society um, where the Hellenistic Jews wanted to go that direction and the more traditional Jews wanted to go in a more traditional direction. And so you had this uh, strife breaking out within the society and the king steps in and says, okay, well, this is the problem. The religion's the problem. Let's get rid of the religion. Hmm. So <laughs> if only it were that simple. <laughs> yeah, that didn't work out very well. So we get this first big revolt. This is 67 or 167 to 160 BC. And it's, it's a really kind of a civil war between the Hellenistic Jews, which are kind of the wealthy elites that are running the state with Antiochus and the Greek people. And then these traditional kind of peasant Jews who are kind of like the, you know, the down South, deep South Bible thumpers, like, uh, the ones that would consider themselves maybe more orthodox, perhaps? Yes. Or like, okay, yes. okay. Yeah, and maybe p- more pure or um, righteous, maybe. I feel, yeah, gosh, not to get into semantics, but yeah, let's talk about what, the, what orthodox <laughs> means at some point, too, because, yeah, sure. interesting stuff. Okay. <laughs> and so we get this, this, this revolt by this guy named Judah Maccabee, which means the hammer in Hebrew. So he's Judah the hammer. And he kind of leads this um, uprising against the Seleucid dynasty. And, and they end up driving the uh, the Seleucids out of Judea. And I have a little quote here. Um, they went around after that, destroying all the Greek altars in the villages, circumcising the boys, and forced all the Hellenized Jews into outlawry. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. That's brutal. Yeah. So these guys were pretty hardcore. Uh, the Jewish rebels, and they they drove out the old dynasty, and they actually asked the Romans to come in and help with them at this time. And this is before Rome has really established itself as a superpower. They're still making, you know, this is before Caesar. This is well before Caesar, 167. Uh, They're just starting to make inroads into the east, and the Jews, who are rebelling against the Seleucids, the Greeks, they invite the Romans in to come help them. And so this is kind of the first foothold that Rome gets in Judea, and they were invited in to help them. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. That is very interesting. Um, so anyways, this is the start of this new dynasty 
the Hasmonean dynasty. And this is another Greek, uh, Greek Jewish dynasty. Um, these guys are Jewish, but they're very m- much Greek also. Um, they have very Greek names and uh, it's just kind of a complicated culture that we can't really imagine today because it just doesn't really exist anymore. But it seemed like a pretty cool place. But w- one of the main flaws of the Jews, and this is evident here, and it was evident in that first revolt, is this infighting. They cannot get over this infighting, and it becomes a crip- it becomes disastrous to them, and it basically costs them their polity and for thousands of years. So just kind of something to remember is this infighting. But so at 67 BC, Pompey Magnus arrives in Judea, and he is invited there because there is a civil war going on between these two guys, these two sons of this queen, Queen Alexandra, who was a very good queen, and uh, you know she had two sons, and the two sons go to war, and you know one of as the sons, you do. <laughs> as you do, as you do, you know. Yeah, sorry. If our dad was an emperor, I'd probably have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Only if I only if I didn't kill you first. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, same thing happens. One of these guys, uh, Hyrocanus II, he goes up, he sends some guys up to Syria, which the Romans already were in, and says, hey, look, you know, um, we're having this civil war. How about I pay you a bunch of money and you'll side with me? And Pompey's like, great. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm into that. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Pompey sides with one side of the civil war and he marches on Jerusalem. And he besieges the city. And just a side note on Jerusalem, this is one of the great cities of the ancient world. And it uh, is thought to have a population of around a million people. It had three walls. And the, the temple itself was a fortress um, surrounded by ravines. And this is a, a super fortified city. This is not an easy city to siege. It's, okay. it's, it's huge. you know. And, and geographically, is it the same place that we call Jerusalem now? Yeah, yeah, same okay. city. Okay. Yeah, all these landmarks are still there, you know, or the, the foundations of them. Uh, but so Pompey eventually, he ends up at the city and he besieges it. And he, um, thankfully for him, he doesn't have to circumvallate it because he has friends inside the city in this other camp who open the gates for him. And so Pompey enters the city and uh, the guy he's going against this Astrobulus II, who is you know, the, the rival claimant to the throne, his forces retreat to the temple itself which is a fortress. And so Pompey has to besiege the temple. And a couple quotes from Josephus here. He's talking about Pompey. Um, Quote, Pompey had taken notice that the enemy abstained from fighting on the seventh day on which the Jews refused all sorts of work on religious account. But he restrained his soldiers from fighting on these days also, for the Jews acted only defensively on the Sabbath day. Josephus continues. Pompey could not help but admire the fortitude of the Jews, especially as they did not at all intermit their religious services, even when they were encom- encompassed by all sides with darts and arrows. <laughs> and, and so we get some stories from the siege where people are literally like trying to like continue with the religious services at the temple while it's under siege. And they're like being killed, like while they're trying to like light incense and stuff like and they just can't be bothered with even what's happening around them. Like, they just want to keep doing their thing. Like, it's a bit of an eerie, eerie scene. But eventually, Pompey does storm the temple. Uh, the Romans are thought to have only lost a few few men. And they massacred 12,000 Jewish defenders of the temple. And 
so this is the end of the revolt and of this this first kind of Hasmonean civil war. And Pompey takes this chance to go inside the temple. All right. So he he go he pulls back the curtain and goes into the holiest of holies, and there's nothing there. <laughs> I think th- I think there's treasure in there. Like there's a shitload of treasure, uh, but there there's no there's no idol. There's nothing. And Pompey decides that. You know, he's so shocked by this that he, he, he didn't know what to do. So he, he just, he left. He didn't touch anything. He left. He's like, what the fuck? Like, he's, <laughs> yeah, like, he's, he's like, I can't <laughs> wait to see this cool statue. It's going to be so cool. And then, and there's, no, there's nothing. There's nothing. Yeah, there's just like, the, <laughs> so he's like, whoa. So but, he doesn't touch anything. And Oh, well, and after leaves. seeing these fuckers like continue on with their religious ceremonies as they're like being killed and like, yeah. like that level of like, I don't know, dedication and stuff was, would probably have struck the Roman mind as being very scary, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And so he actually kind of apologizes and, and gets the, you know, the, the priest to cleanse the temple because he had... <laughs> desecrated it by entering it so he's like oh my god i i don't understand what's happening here i I thought i did but i think i might have fucked up (laughs) and like josephus talks on pompey very uh he seemed to have handled this pretty well compared to how how some of these other sieges are going to go anyways but so this is the end of this hasmonian revolt but the 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 outcome of this is that judea is now a tributary state to rome they are still nominally independent but they have to pay tribute you know, this is an agreement that the Romans really like to make. And it's very much like Caesar, where instead of fighting people, well, let's just get them to join us. And the way you do this is you you appeal to their ruling class, right? Hmm. Yes, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, the Roman army shows up outside the city and then you send your emissaries to the, you know, the king or the governors or whatever and say, look, you know, we're going to defeat you in battle. Here's your choice. You can join us and work with us. Or we can destroy you. That's your choice. And so, it, you know, the, shockingly enough, the ruling elite would oftentimes work with the Romans to preserve their own hides, you know? <laughs> Making you an offer that you can't refuse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is how the Romans did things. Because they'd much rather not fight the war. They'd much rather just have the guys pay tribute and follow their orders and kind of be puppets to them. Yeah, they know, were, well, the Romans were super pragmatic. Like, you can absolutely. say what you want about them, but they were hella pragmatic. And that's, again, that's with the whole, like, religious thing. Like, that's why they were like, what the fuck? Like... Yeah, that's yeah. why it was so hard for them to understand these people because it, it really wasn't pragmatic. It was it was very esoteric and 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 complicated. You know, it's way too complicated for the average guy back then. You know, mm-hmm. but anyway, so what had happened in Judea was you know these these kings had invited them in during the civil war. You know, several several times they invited the Romans in to, for help, and then the side that wins is is a Roman uh, client basically, and this is what happened. And so. When Jesus goes to the temple and he attacks the money changers, that's because those guys were working with the Romans. And they're called the Sadducees. And this is the upper class of Jewish society at this time. The Sadducees were the religious authorities, the political authorities, and the economic authorities. They were the upper class. They worked with the Romans. They controlled the temple cult. Um, You know, they controlled the priesthood. And, you know, after about 40 years of, of Rome being in there, you know, the average guy looked on them with kind of disgust because it was just so corrupt, you know? Yeah. Makes yeah, sense? no, for sure. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Yeah. And so, like, again, so when Jesus attacks the money changers, this is a good example of kind of this this feeling um, against the religious authorities, the Sadducees, that were um, in power working with the Romans at this time. Um, now, there were other factions at this time. Um, the second big faction is called the Pharisees. 
And this is kind of the rabbinic tradition. And uh, to Pharisee, I, I think it means to separate oneself. And they really tried to separate themselves from the temple cult. And like I said, this had always been a sacerdotal religion with a priestly caste that controlled everything. But these guys were like scholars and um, charismatic preachers that would go off on their own and and think about religion and think about things um, kind of in a new light now that the old light was so um, corrupted. Mm. And they had, you know, a big emphasis on scholarship and religious study. And, you know, I think, I, I would think that it's safe to say that Jesus was one of these guys. Um, you know, he's a, he's a charismatic preacher and maybe on the more militant side of the Pharisees, but I do think it would be accurate to put Jesus in this group. Okay. And Josephus, our narrator, um, I would put him in the first group. So those Sadducees, those those people that were working with Rome. Well, yeah, Josephus I mean, he was, was like literally <laughs> like the emperor's <laughs> well, yeah. lapdog, it sounds like. Well, that's how, that's what, how it ended up. Um, okay. But so a little bit more on Josephus. Now, he is a Cohen, which means he is his father's side of the family is descendant from a high priest. And so this is a very kind of, I don't know, noble, I guess, noble lineage, um, religiously noble lineage he's basically an elite and um he claims to have this amazing education and he he makes a lot of just kind of outrageous claims in his book that just cannot be true like he he claims that he was like a child prodigy and that rabbis would come and ask him for advice when he was 14 and it's just like there's no way that could be true and like there's a lot of problems with josephus (laughs) because there's a lot of that kind of stuff in it that just doesn't make sense it just cannot possibly be true but yet at the same time, a lot of it is kind of, you know, held up by other uh, accounts. Um, okay, that's a- really interesting. Like, so Josephus is especially unreliable. Well, I mean, I think that it's safe to say that most people are pretty unreliable narrators when speaking about their own lives. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, we can talk a little bit more, I think, about his unique position in the end, but in, in the discussion, but... This is a very flawed source, and I'll bring up a few more examples of it that are probably, I don't know if it would be accurate to call plagiarism or just outright lies, or maybe just um, flavor flavor things like Herodotus, <laughs> maybe like, <laughs> but we'll get to some of those um, at when the war actually starts. But so, yeah, I, I do think that Josephus was of this upper class that worked with the Romans and was not really liked by the people. Now, there are two other classes, though. And so the next one is called the Essenes. And these guys were like the religious whack jobs of the day. Um, They're an ascetic order that lived on the fringes of society. They literally lived in caves and shit and would try and go as long as they could without eating or drinking. And a lot of them were celibate. You know, these guys were strange. Uh, (laughs) Whack job seems harsh. They were just really enthusiastic. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they just like living in the desert caves and not eating. And hey, I don't know, man. I kind of, I actually kind of get it. <laughs> so, so we know a lot more about these guys today than they might have even known back then because of some of the archaeology and uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls was an Essene text that they discovered. And uh, so this is a very interesting sect. This is by far the most esoteric of the sects, but they themselves didn't want to have anything to do with society. Even like they just. They just shunned society, left and went into the wilderness, you know, like, so they're not really going to play a part in the story, but just they're there. (laughs) They're there. They're there. there. (laughs) And then the main trouble causers of the story 
are a faction called the Zealots, which hmm. is <laughs> a fanatical, um, nationalistic, radical, religious movement that is wanting to use violence to overthrow the Roman yoke and to regain Jewish nationhood and to fix the temple, to, to do all these things. But you have to use violence to do it. And um, yeah, so this is, this is the main uh, movers and shankers in this story are these zealots. And they are incredibly factional. There are a billion of these different zealot factions and they all hate each other and they all want to fight each other. And they all think that their way is the correct way. Like these guys are extremists, like religious extremists. You know? Yeah. Like, I, I was going to say that's, we still have the word around. That's how yeah. crazy it was. So. Their name. Yeah. It has gone down in infamy and some of the stuff that they get into during this is just ridiculous. But anyway, so that's a little bit of the background. Um, so we have this Hellenistic period. We have this, you know, this kind of Greek and Jewish dynasty, Eventually, infighting, you know, weakens them and the Romans come in. It becomes a Roman tributary state. And then in 6 AD, they just make it a full-on province and they send a governor there. They merge it with a couple of their other things with um, Samaria and Udea or Udemea. Udemea, sorry, southern Israel. So the Romans in 6 AD, they officially create the Roman province of Judea. And Jewish uh, polity is basically stamped out they still do have a lot of um jurisprudence for their laws and stuff like that but you know the the high orders are coming down from from realm at this point um okay so this goes on for about 50 years and we get to the year 66 ad and this is the start of the jewish war and this is where our story is really going to take off and i have a quick question though um before we get like all the way into that like do you think that like some of the stuff that Jesus was talking about, like about, you know, we should do this peacefully, blah, blah, blah. Was that like directly addressing some of the stuff that the zealots were saying? I think so. Yeah. Okay. And um, there is a lot of these Pharisees. Um, the Pharisees go on to basically found modern Judaism. So modern Judaism is, is a result of this Pharisee sect. Um, but there's a lot of these Pharisees in the Bible and, you know, Jesus and his disciples are constantly arguing with them, but it's not, um, it's not ugly. It's very much theological and philosophical, like something you would do with maybe your friend or with, um, someone you knew really well. Yeah. Or like maybe member, like people who were both Christians, but like members of different, like, I don't know, styles of Christianity, they can yeah. hang out and talk to each other about it and argue about it without wanting to murder each other hopefully right? absolutely yeah and um and yeah but there are people in the background and like i said jesus is very unique character this kind of meekness um is not something that was popular in judea like they're very also, warlike he was Sorry, also like a fucking revolutionary though like he was like i don't absolutely, know man dude. yeah he was uh, we <laughs> i feel like he's so misrepresented in our modern culture <laughs> Well, and I think understanding this story is going to help a lot to understanding Christianity and Judaism, because this is this Jewish war is really kind of um, the breaking point. And, and we'll, we can get into it. But um, did, that, did that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I just was was curious. Yeah. And I, we can definitely talk more about Jesus um, and these different sects and these different views on where the religion should go. But um, so but we're just going to skip ahead to 66 AD at the start of the war. And. This is the 12th 
year of the Emperor Nero's reign. <laughs> <laughs> so things are getting real shitty back in Rome. <laughs> things are getting wild. <laughs> <laughs> and this rebellion breaks out in Roman Judea. And we're not really sure what caused it, but Josephus gives us just kind of another ridiculous explanation. Um, he says that the violence began at Caesarea, which was a major city in Judea, and it was provoked by Greeks, quote, Greeks of a certain merchant house sacrificing birds in front of a local synagogue, end quote. You know what, though? Like, look at how World War I started, sort of. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, crazy shit happens. I don't know. Who knows what the real, I mean, there could be more, there could be more to that story, but you could maybe have summed it up like, I mean, who fucking knows? I think, you know, maybe that was just like the straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing. And and there was all this, this discontentment simmering under the surface of society because the religion had been corrupted and they're slaves to the Romans and they've, they've lost their freedom. And sure, you know, they, you know, and not so only a, that, but like the, the empire that they're, they're under now is starting to the wheels are coming off in a pretty like wild way and yeah <laughs> absolutely absolutely and you got to think you know nero's had everything go to shit at rome everything's probably gone to shit in the provinces too right like yeah i mean maybe like to probably to a lesser extent <laughs> but probably like you know like a cancer spreading out from rome yeah right the, yeah the dysfunction yeah. i mean without their 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 system was really centralized right so when this when the center begins to fall then eh. well so anyways yeah and the, maybe we should do a, a nero episode because it's the second oh, wait, time i we think we fucking yeah. should dude because it's so <laughs> wild we could just make it even like a little short bonus one or something we, like let's talk about how wild nero got like <laughs> yeah we could definitely do that there's some fun stuff and really you know he really was one of the greatest artists and poets of all time and it's a shame that, uh, you know, he was trapped in the body of an emperor and, 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 and had to be a politician. And... Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, so in 66, you know, we get this uprising that starts in Jude. It starts in Caesarea and it starts spreading. And, uh, you know, local Jews start getting really upset with these Greeks for, you know, apparently, and they, they start complaining to the Romans and then they start complaining about taxes because Nero is, is uh, taxing the shit out of everything. He's like just fucking pissing money away. Like no, like, it's just like <laughs> yes. in, in the most insane way you could possibly Rebuild the imagine. city that he may have burned down. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so anyways, unrest breaks out and this revolt starts. And it, it, it really, again, this is kind of a, a Jew on Jew thing, this infighting where the, the, the Jews that are working with the Romans or the Hellenistic Jews are fighting the traditional Jews who, who want to go back to a more orthodox approach or something. But so that's kind of another kind of unstable environment. Uh, there's all these different factions and Roman authority is starting to break down a little bit. So, but so the, yeah, there's a spirit of rebellion that's kind of ensuing. Now, the governor of Jerusalem is a guy of name of Gassius Florus. And during these uh, tumults, all these zealots start kind of um, acting up. And so uh, Florus decides to raid the temple 
and he takes he goes into the treasury and he takes that'll 17... make him calm down <laughs> oh yeah that's always a great move and people are so... freaking out about religious shit let's go attack their religious place <laughs> yeah and like people are not sure why he did this now he claims that the money was owed to the emperor as restitution for damages done by the rebellion but some people think he just wanted to steal the money for himself and that he, this was a great kind of chance mm. to do it when there's all this unrest happening um but yeah, anyway that would so be he... weird if people use unrest to fucking <laughs> steal a bunch of money and fucking i'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> no a governor a, pol- a roman politician would never do that yeah no po- no politician of any time would ever do that <laughs> <laughs> so anyways this uh, shockingly leads to more unrest in the city and uh, Gessius Florus is openly mocked in the streets and the Jews are passing around like a collection bucket to give money into it so they can give it to him because he's so poor. Like... Oh <laughs> so Cassius has Burned. to with... <laughs> yeah, he has to withdraw uh, or Gessius has to withdraw from the city uh, from fear of his life and um the next day, he decides that he's going to put his foot down and he sends his troops into the city to subdue the unrest and they capture all these leaders that were making fun of him. He has them whipped and tortured to death in front of everybody. And this is the last straw for the population and a general revolt starts in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, the same day, the garrison is quickly overran by the rebels and the, the pro-king, uh, the, I'm sorry, the pro-Roman king, Herod Agrippa II, which is a you know, puppet king, uh, he has to flee the city uh, to Galilee. So this is basically a revolution that has started in, Ju- in Jerusalem. All Make right. sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just uh, just absorbing. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yeah, and I like this word revolution. You brought it up earlier, and I made a point to put that in my outline that I haven't really heard that word used before, but just thinking about this, this is a revolution. And like most revolutions, there's not really a plan, you know? Mm. Um, so kind of like a general purge ensues on non-Jewish elements of society or Hellenistic Jewish elements of society. And this one particular nasty zealot faction, the Sicarii, uh, they're very famous for assassinating people. Yes, uh, like many revolutions, it ends in a fucking bloodbath. And <laughs> basically, absolutely. a lot of, yeah, a lot of times, like bloodbath and genocide yeah genocide sometimes all kinds of fun stuff happens a lot of times after these things we love to we love to like romanticize the word like yeah revolution i mean like but when you look at it in a historical concept yeah dude no not not as fun (laughs) like comparing this to the french revolution and the russian revolution there's a lot of similarities Mm. now it's not perfect it's not a perfect analogy but you can see a lot of the same kind of now, I would say failures of human nature being brought to the forefront um, because these are totally different ideologies that everybody has. But uh, but anyways, maybe we can talk a, a little bit about that at the end of why, why does these revolutions turn turn so bad? But um, but anyway, so this purge is happening and the you know Romans are basically losing control of the province. And there is this huge fortress that was built by Herod the Great, uh, the Roman uh, puppet king in the preceding years called Masada. And this is one of the greatest fortresses in the ancient world. And it's built on like a mesa in the middle of the freaking desert, like by the Dead Sea. Like, and it has its own water supplies. And it has like one path to get up there. Like, 
it's almost an unpenetrable fortress. Uh, you can still go there today. It's like a big national park in, in Israel. But these Sicari guys, they surprise the Roman garrison and they take this fortress somehow. And this is supposed to be an unpenetrable fortress. And somehow they, 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 they took it. They took it from the Romans. And Interesting. Um, we're, yeah. Now, this does not end up well. Just a little skip forward here and just a little uh, spoiler alert for these zealots. But, you know, the, this is the very last fortress to fall is Masada, the very end of the war. And this is really more of a mopping up operation by the time the Romans actually take it. But they cannot storm the city or the fortress without building a siege ramp. And so they built this like 400 foot tall siege ramp up the side of the fucking Mesa where they could push a battering ram up. And like, it's just this amazing work of Roman engineering. And I think it took them like a year to do it. Yeah, And they moved just... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, I think we talked about this during our Caesar episode, actually. Like this particular instance of like just this yeah just like this insane i'm not sure if we mentioned it by name but definitely we're thinking about it like you know the these insane like works of you know infrastructure that the romans were capable of or civil engineering i guess it would be called yeah yeah engineering yeah and you can still see it today like they move so much earth and they had to pound it you know it's just an amazing accomplishment but they eventually do storm this this fortress of Masada and all the garrison commit suicide and you're actually not allowed to commit suicide in Judaism. So what they did is they came up with this thing where we're going to draw straws and the guy who draws the shortest straw, well, he has to kill everybody else and then he commits suicide. So then only one person has to commit suicide. The rest are technically murdered. So that's the end of the Sakari. They commit suicide on Masada and the Romans take it. But I'm only telling you that now because we're going to have a similar story that Josephus relies about himself that sounds awfully familiar <laughs> to Masada. Okay. <laughs> so anyways, all right. So this rebellion is spreading. You know, Masada has fallen to the Jews. Uh, initially, this is mostly, uh, you know, within the Jewish state, people fighting each other. So you had, you had these Pharisees that kind of wanted to stay out of it. You had the Sadducees who were basically along for the ride at this point, you know, this rebellion had been started and all the people that didn't want to go along with it. Well, they kind of are along for the ride. Now they don't really have a choice because the zealots have massacred the garrison of Jerusalem. And this thing is, it's too late to really go back now. So basically all these factions, even the ones that would have liked to be with the Romans are now against the Romans. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, so in response to these um, atrocities and this uh, rebellion that's taking place, um, Nero is not happy, and he asks uh, the legate of Syria, a guy by the name of Cestius Gallus, to regain control of the province. And um, so Gallus raises a huge army, uh, 30,000 men, including the 12th Legion. Uh, it's a battle-hardened legion. Uh, and many, many local auxiliaries, and he invades Judea from the north. And um, he does not meet much resistance. You know, these Jewish rebels are fierce. Uh, they're very fierce, but they're unorganized. And it's, you know, their their fanaticism, in a lot of ways, does not do them a service on the battlefield. Because if you just fanatically go charge and get yourself killed, well, you didn't really accomplish anything, right? Yeah, that's not, like, <laughs> effective. Tactics. It's really not that effective, Yeah. <laughs> It's like more effective to like try and retreat and survive so you can fight again, you know, like um, 
but but like, anyway so yeah i mean but maybe that wasn't the point like maybe they wanted to die i mean i don't know it's always interesting to try to think about people's motivations right like yeah I yeah i mean religious sellouts i mean jesus i mean Christ, yeah can, so yeah. their whole thing is like this life doesn't matter and i mean so why would i don't know you see some of the problematic aspects of a philosophies like that with situations like this i think oh absolutely dude absolutely but anyway so so gallus has this big army and you know the jews can't really they can't really stop him and he gets to judea i mean i'm sorry to jerusalem um you know he you know destroys any resistance he meets along the way uh he takes his area he massacres eight thousand citizens there uh by the time he gets to jerusalem uh, the city is busting with refugees from the you know rest of the country. You know, people have been fleeing this army coming to Jerusalem, and the city is just swelling. But for some reason, Gall- Gallus decides that after an initial investment, he built a few siege camps and walls, like he was going to attack the city. After that initial investment, he decides to leave, and he takes this big army west towards the coast. And we're not really sure why he was doing this. It's not really explained. But to get to the coast, you have to go through this narrow pass called Beth Haram. And it just so happens that the Jews had set an ambush for the Roman army at this pass. And so this is called the Battle of Beth Haram. And this is 66 uh, AD. So uh, Cestius Gallus is leading his army to the coast for some unknown reason. They have to go through this pass. And all of a sudden, they are being showered with missiles while they are in the pass. So Jewish partisans had climbed on the mountainside and were just hucking spears and missiles down at these guys. And they didn't really have anywhere to go. They're just kind of stuck in this pass. And so they're kind of hemmed down. They're trying to form up a line. And then the Jews charge down the sides of the mountain. And before the Romans can, can get their feet set, before they can form up, they are just engulfed. And this becomes a massacre and the Roman army is completely destroyed. And, you know, so 6,000 legionaries are killed. Uh, most of the auxiliaries are killed. And Cestius uh, Gallus has to flee for his life. And he basically left the whole army behind. And they actually took one. They took the standard of the 12th legion. Uh, you know, the, the Romans yeah. put. Yeah, they did not like these standards being taken. So No, they were. <laughs> I mean, that, and I think that tradition still holds today. I mean, people love their flags, right? Like. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so this little march to the sea, this this army that had not even fought a battle, it was just completely dominating. It's gone. All of a sudden it's gone. And Roman authority is broken in Judea. And there's no there's no army left. There's no there's no one left. And so this this sent shockwaves to the whole Roman world that, you know, it's very much like um uh, a similar thing happened in Germany with a guy named Varus. He's, you know, marching this these legions around and they get ambushed and then the army's just gone. And so this was one of the worst defeats in Rome's history at this time. Yeah, and... dude. Can can we speculate wildly for just a second? <laughs> sure. Okay. I wonder if there might have been like... Okay, so obviously the Jews knew that the Romans were going to go through this pass, right? Like, yep. there was some reason that they were doing this, right? I, wa- I just, I wonder, I wonder to what extent like maybe like trickery or like, I, mean, I guess you could call it like statecraft yeah. or something. Subterfuge. Yeah. It's fascinating. Sorry, it I is. just tend to speculate there. <laughs> well, and we don't know why he was leaving Jerusalem. Like, it, maybe he it, received like fake orders from somebody, or like, I mean, gosh, who knows, right? Who knows, like, man? Yeah, who knows? And th- there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on in this war. There is a lot of subterfuge and false, 
fake news, basically. So juicy. It's so fascinating. Yeah. But so anyways, this Roman army is destroyed. And all of a sudden, you know, all these people that weren't so gung-ho to fight the Romans, now everybody's gung-ho. And we actually <laughs> might have a chance here to regain our freedom. Yeah, and the so this Romans revolt... have a lot of chickens out there, right? <laughs> Boy, they sure do. Yeah, they sure do. I have a quote for Josephus here after the battle. He says, quote, those who know how to win are much more numer- are much more numerous than those who know how to make proper use of their victories. Oh, man, that is fucking good. <laughs> that is really and, good. Yeah. And like the guy who led this attack, uh, Simon Bar Giora. Now, he is actually uh, he is not a zealot. Now, this is kind of one of the more moderate factions. And and eventually two factions emerge in in revolutionary Judea. And you have this provisional government, which is the vestiges of the old order. And the priestly caste, the aristocracy, those people. And then you have the radical kind of mob, you know. <laughs> it's very much similar to the Russian Revolution. Um, okay, yeah. Well, yeah, people that have basically, yeah, yeah. we won't get into that. Anyway. <laughs> and so our, our, our lovely narrator is going to come into the story here now. And um, so Josephus, much like Thucydides, takes place in this war. Now, he is, as a young man, he had traveled to Rome on some kind of official kind of diplomatic business. Um, he met a lot of people there, and he was very much impressed by Rome. He, he thought it was that the Jews could learn a lot from the Romans and that this was a new, a new force in the world that was ascending. So uh, he was really impressed. We'll just put it like that. Anyways, he gets back to Rome. I mean, he gets back to Judea right at the start of this rebellion. And so the powers that be say, well, look, Josephus, you're um, you've been to Rome. You can speak, you know, Greek and Latin and, uh, you know, you're educated. You're well known. You're from a great family. You're going to lead an army for us. You're going to be a general. And so Josephus becomes a general and he is sent to the north of uh, Judea and Galilee. And he is given a city to defend um the city is called uh yodfat or japo japopada i think japopada is the greek name and yodfat is the hebrew name okay anyways i'm guessing that you probably didn't say either of those right That's okay. i don't <laughs> think i did yeah <laughs> my apologies um, <laughs> so anyways so uh josephus is in command and he has his own city and apparently he was a shit commander and like <laughs> what several of the cities around him like the smaller towns decided to side with the romans because (laughs) he was such a shitty leader and like people felt like he just so bad (laughs) (laughs) yeah he felt like he just wasn't trying like he didn't want to fight the war oh word okay well maybe he did it i don't know now i will say to, to catch this the only source from this of this information is Josephus. Okay. okay. So he is telling, he's telling the reader that people thought he didn't want to fight the war. So this is like mind games on a bunch okay, of different Okay. Yeah. Here. So he maybe who fucking knows what he was really about. Right. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, but he, anyways, gosh, this guy, I'm, I am like a little bit falling in love with this guy the same way I a little bit fell in love with 
L. Ron Hubbard when I learned about his life. It's like, <laughs> it's like there's like these scoundrels, right? Like, yeah, like... I'm, we're gonna get to one of these. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so he's in the city, and basically the Romans come and they attack. And um, oh, actually, I, I forgot a point. Um, uh, so after Cestius Gallus is utterly defeated and his army lost, he flees back to Syria and he dies shortly after. We're not sure if he just kind of died a broken man or if he was offed by Nero or something, but he's out of the picture. And Nero sends his best general to retake the province. And this is a man by the name of Vespasian who will go on to be the Roman emperor. Um, Nero sends with Vespasian the 5th, the 10th, and the 15th legion uh, with a bunch of auxiliaries. This is an army of about 60,000 men. And his son Titus comes along from Egypt with a force of his own. Uh, so Vespasian lands in, um, in Syria and marches along the coast. And this army cannot be stopped by the Jews. They just don't have the cohesiveness to fill an army this large. They are very, very fierce when they fight, but they cannot get along long enough to make this big of an army, right? And mm-hmm. uh, so Vespasian is basically train in like the tactics you would because the Romans were, yeah, they were all about their fucking battle formations and all that shit, right? Like, oh yeah, and yeah. this is a military machine that no one else could match. You know, when they do lose, it's not because of equipment or anything. Like it, they really have the best equipment, the best training, mm-hmm. the the best organization it's not even close you know yeah anyways yeah so there's this huge disparity as far as power goes where roman power is probably i don't know 100 times 1000 times more than these jews but yet they're able to put up a pretty good fight here and um but vespasian eventually marches around the country avoiding jerusalem trying to subdue all these other areas and just kind of isolate jerusalem and we'll deal with that um, hopefully we'll be able to just come to terms with them because there still are this provisional government in there that still is kind of like a, you know, a legitimate uh, civic order, not some religious fundamental people. So Vespasian is avoiding, um, he's avoiding Jerusalem, but he does take him to the city that Josephus is in, Yodfat. We'll just go with Yodfat. <laughs> I like Yodfat. It sounds Yodfat. <laughs> so after a short defense the city is uh, surrounded. Uh, the walls are breached, and the Jewish defenders, according to Josephus, there is only forty of them left, and they decide to have this suicide pact, where they're going to draw straws, and whoever draws the shortest straw is going to murder everybody else, and then they're going to kill themselves. And it just so happens that Josephus draws the short straw. And I guess it's implied that he murdered everybody else. He doesn't actually say that. Uh, but anyways, he is captured by the Romans. Um, he does so, not kill himself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this is. So where does this sound familiar? This sounds exactly like Masada, doesn't it? Yeah, that's so funny. And so some people think Josephus has just kind of taken these parts to just kind of make it more entertaining or just to, really to make himself look better. Like... Um, Anyways, he is taken captive by Vespasian. Uh, you know, he's, he's, according to him, he's the last survivor of the city or something. Of, and he's taken by Vespasian. And while he's in captivity with Vespasian, he has a vision. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> of course 
you have to have a vision. That's the first thing, everybody listening. You need to have a vision. <laughs> and he has this vision that, you know, Vespasian's going to become emperor. <gasps> and sure enough, a uh, <laughs> few months later, you know, Nero is killed and Rome dissolves into just a bloodbath and uh, his successor is killed. The guy who was going to succeed him is killed. <laughs> And a bunch of usurpers are killed. You're spoiling the Nero episode. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, yeah, Rome has gone to shit. And um, Vespasian is here with this victorious army. And his uh, his troops declare him Caesar. And so he leaves. He leaves the Middle East to go back to Rome. And he leaves his his son, Titus, or Titus, uh, back to finish the war, basically. Now, Josephus says this about his capture. He says... Quote, I protest openly that I do not go over to the Romans as a deserter of the Jews, but as a minister from thee. Yeah, that's not, that sounds way better. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, so we have this story. We don't really know what happened in Yodfat, but he eventually ends up in the Romans, uh, Roman captivity. He tells this heroic story that, you know, all the defenders killed themselves. Well... Probably not true. He probably just copied Masada because it sounded cooler. Now, this vision, uh, this is another extremely problematic event because the guy who basically invented modern rabbinical Judaism, I don't have his name here, um, Yitzit von something, I don't know, um, had the exact same story. Now, he had gone to Josephus in the city of Caesarea and begged him to allow him to start a school for studying Judaism. And he had this vision that Joseph, that uh, Vespasian was going to become the emperor. And Vespasian liked this guy so much that he gave him a school. And again, this is like one of the most famous Jews in history. I'm sorry I don't have his name, but uh, and it just so happens that, you know, Josephus had the exact same vision. <laughs> <laughs> Josephus is... <laughs> I, yeah, that's fucking hilarious, though, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> if it worked once, why wouldn't it work again? And it and did, right? Like, it did. It did. Yeah, it did work, apparently, yeah. So he's actually kind of accepted into the inner circle of Vespasian and becomes close friends with his son, Titus, or Titus. And he, he is actually serving with the Romans as an official uh, translator at this time. And some people even say strategist, that... He was like an advisor to the Romans to help them deal with these with these zealots. Did he like write that in his own book though about no how no no he, he proclaims that he is innocent you know um, but a lot of people say that he is a traitor. Um, his books were banned for centuries in a lot of Jewish institutions. Okay, so is this still like a subversive thing to talk about in Jewish circles? Uh, no, now okay. now scholarly people have come to really appreciate him because of how complex of a, of a man he really is. And, and yeah, there is a little charlatan in him and it's great. Yeah. I, I love it. <laughs> like, there's now, some, at, the I mean... same, at the same time, this is the only source reliable source that we have for the Jewish war. Tacitus talks about it, but it, his history of the Jews are, it's so outrageous that it's just not even, it's clear that he just was just completely making it up. Well, you know, some like, parts of this story that you just told me, like, definitely sound like something you would see in a movie, right? Like, this, like, army getting, like, overrun with, like, these, like, 
you know yeah. i feel like that's that's a fucking scene in so many different movies that we've seen right like and maybe this is where oh, that absolutely. fiction originated like i don't know or maybe it's not fiction i don't know but it sounds well, I think a little battle, fictional the way that the you, battle, way that you recounted it to me sounded fictionalized again we don't have that many sources on it because most of the romans were killed uh, yeah no for sure of course i who fucking knows but like just the I guess this is also sort of just a stylistic thing too. You could say the same thing like in Herodotus, like you know, it's also meant to be entertaining. I'm sure, right? Like, absolutely. So. I mean, I, there are different accounts now. So one of the sources I was using was that uh, Doctor Doctor Henry Abramson, and his version of that battle was a cavalry charge, a camel charge actually, that the Jews came down on camels. Now I couldn't find that anywhere, so I don't know where he found that, but um. So, yeah, there are just little differences like that. You know, one said it was infantry, one said it was cavalry, you know. So who knows? I mean, Josephus is probably not a reliable narrator in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways he is. So it's just a really complicated text. And and for the Jews, this is extremely complicated figure because he basically was the main apologist for the Jewish people in antiquity. And his work was so popular that it was preserved in the imperial archives as a permanent entry because it was it it spoke so glowingly on the emperor Vespasian and Roman military exploits but he also tried to defend the Jews and tell their side of the story and and not just make them out to be this ridiculous people that you know they actually had a good reason for all this stuff like so he's trying to toe this really difficult position where you have to make your captors happy. You have to make the people that you now live with, the country you now live with, you know, you have to, if you want your works to be preserved, then you have to make sure that they're going to like it enough to preserve it. Okay. While at the same time, at the same time, you got to get enough of that good stuff in to really give the Jews their, their just say, you know? Yeah. So okay. So this reminds me of the way that like a lot of painters would like make fun of the ruling class without them realizing it by like painting them like looking all ridiculous and shit and like, but in like kinda, a really subtle yeah. way. And like, and also yeah. you can see this in a lot of religious artwork too. Like these, like, you know, these, these people that are kind of suppressed in these situations, they still, if they have a, a way to, I don't know, express themselves you, oh, you can, in a subtle yeah. way, like you can see, okay, cool, cool. I get it. Yeah, and I think there's a, uh, when I was in uh, my high school, we did a, a play of Antigone, you know, Sophocles Antigone, but it was written by a, a Frenchman during the Nazi occupation. And it's all about the occupation, you know, but it's it's Sophocles, you know, it's just kind of a different take on it. Um, and so that was like one of the only ways that you could criticize the Nazis was in art because they weren't smart enough to really realize it, you know? Yeah, it's fascinating. But this is even more because he's trying to preserve something for history. It's not just a political statement. It's that, now that his people have been crushed, he wants them to have to be remembered in a fair light, basically. And uh, but anyways, we'll get into a little bit more about Josephus at the end. But so just to finish up the, the war here. Um, so after Vespasian is recalled, uh, Titus and Josephus, his uh, his advisor at this point, they go to Jerusalem. And uh, Titus is a much more bellicose uh, commander than his father. And Titus thinks that well, these guys aren't going to come to terms. We have to take them out. You know, even if they do come to terms, they're just going to be more problems in the future. You know, we, we got to put this thing down and we have to take Jerusalem to do that. So he decides that he is going to besiege Jerusalem. All right. <laughs> okay, so this starts in the year 70 AD 
the siege begins. Now, some of the um, the background to this siege, you know, I mentioned those two main governments, the the fact, the provisional government, the remnants of the old regime, the old order, and this new uh, radical revolutionary faction, the Zealots. Um, now, the Zealots have taken all these fortresses in northern Israel or northern Judea, Galilee, and that's the first place that the Romans came through. And as they were doing that, all these zealots had to retreat south, and they all took refuge in Jerusalem. So you basically have all these foreigners that aren't actually from the city. These are people from other parts of the country, all huddled in the city. This is going to be the final uh, stand against uh, against Titus. And the zealots in, invite 20,000 of these Udameans to enter the city, and it's kind of a... I think they're Jewish. I'm not sure if they're Jewish or just like super similar to Jewish, but maybe like half Jewish, half Egyptian kind of people okay, or half Arabian. Um, anyways, the zealots invite 20,000 of these people in to the city to fight on their side. And, you know, this is a huge number. This is an army basically. Yeah. And the first thing these guys do when they get into the city is they start killing all the members of the other faction. So the zealots start attacking the provisional government and the provisional government has to retreat to the Temple Mount, <laughs> which is, again, a fortress. And so basically you have a civil war happening inside the city. Caused by the zealots. Because caused by the zealots. Could, okay. And- while it's being besieged by the Romans. All right. So the, 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 the provisional government takes refuge in the temple. The zealots siege the temple. And this is an incredibly notorious episode. It's called the Zealot Siege of the Temple. <laughs> 12,000 Jews are, are massacred again in the temple. Uh, lots of it is damaged. Um, but the Zealots take control of the city and all hell breaks out. All right. Is this making sense? Yeah, man. I'm uh, I'm just taking it all in. It's, it all right. seems like a, you're, you're, it's like a. It's like a fucking train wreck and you can't look away. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. And like, it's just so frustrating to think of it like from a Jewish perspective that, you know, they had a lot of chances here and it's this infighting again and again and again. And they're literally besieging their own temple so they can get rid of the other, you know, it's it's just ridiculous. Like, well, it's kind of like the same thing with the Greeks though, too. You know, it's like, again, it is, it's fucking yeah. infighting. Like maybe it's not a big deal if your neighbor doesn't do shit the exact same fucking way as you. Maybe you should worry about bigger things. I don't know. It's just so frustrating. Yeah. Doing the research on this, I thought, shit, maybe this is one of the parts of the Greek culture that rubbed off on them is that they have all this infighting, but that you can definitely see that the very similar um, decline in the two civilizations caused by this infighting. I feel like the part, maybe it is part of the Greek philosophy because there's a lot of like rigid rigidity and thought that I think goes along with things like zealotry. Like it's my way or the, or you're going to burn or whatever. Fuck. Like, well, and, and like we think of the Greeks as like logical and stuff like the Aristotle, but, Again, there was there was Plato. There's a whole there's all these other different um, interpretations on Greek philosophy. And... Sure, but even like like Aristotelian thought does have its own rigidity inherent in it that I think um, you have to like Absolutely. move past to like understand complex concepts, you know. And so like I don't know. All right. Well, anyway, so just moving back to the siege. Um, this is a Sorry. really <laughs> no. That's all right. No, that's all right. Um, this is a really nasty siege. This is one of the nastiest ones. Um, that you're going to read about. Um, so T- Tacitus puts the figure of the besieged at 600,000 
Josephus puts it at 1.1 million. Shit. So either figure, this is a huge city. This is one of the biggest cities in the world. And um, it's swollen with all these refugees, right? And all these foreign soldiers. And um, and then there's just complete chaos within the city. There's no authority. You know, they're, they're killing each other. The authorities are fighting it out. And so... So all the Romans really have to do is fucking wait, right? Basically. Um, Titus uh, does the Roman thing. They circumvallate the city. Again, this is a huge city. I think um, they have three walls. So the Romans had to build a bigger wall all around the city at the same height. <laughs> this was a huge piece of engineering work. Titus did it in a few months. Um, so the city was sealed off. No one could escape at this point. It was circumvallated. And people did try to escape. And they anyone caught was crucified on the ramparts of the wall. And apparently... This was up to 500 people a day are being crucified on these ramparts. Um, the infighting continues in the city. Uh, the zealot factions attack rival zealot factions, and one of the major food warehouses in the city is destroyed. The reason it was destroyed was to encourage people to fight rather than to surrender. That classic zealot thinking, right? Oh, yeah. That just makes perfect sense, right? <laughs> that's, classic, uh, that's classic zealot thinking, though, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's ends justify the means. Right. And, uh, you know, we're going to take you along on this little ride, whether you like it or not. Yeah, because I have all the fucking answers and well, the I'm moral right. high yeah. ground and you don't fucking know anything and you suck. Absolutely. <laughs> like, yep. I'm just right. You're just wrong. And and I can't hear and I can't hear anything that you say. <laughs> yeah. And so they burn this warehouse. A huge amount of the of the city's food is destroyed. Um, Josephus quotes, um, or to quote Josephus, he says, quote, gaping with hunger, like mad dogs, lawless gangs went struggling and reeling from street to street. So a major starvation event happens and, um, it gets so bad that, um, there are Jewish women who are named by name who are alleged to have been devouring their babies. Um, from hunger during this thing. So the Romans basically starved a city into submission. It, it only takes seven months, um, which I guess is a long time. But Yeah, and it would uh, have been a lot longer had they not decided to burn not, all their food. Yeah, they so, thought the city could withstand it probably two or three years um, if they hadn't destroyed the food stocks. And who knows what would have happened in those because Rome got weird and I mean it's it's so interesting who like, knows yeah th these little like pivot points in history are always so fascinating like maybe we shouldn't burn the food I'm sure somebody said <laughs> but... like wait a minute guys like, <laughs> <laughs> let's just you know we're under siege uh... <laughs> but so anyways after seven months the city is beset with desperation um titus attacks the walls he breaches all three walls and a general massacre ensues uh the city is sacked and burned um there is a heroic stand in the temple the zealots retreat to the temple and allegedly as the romans are uh, assaulting the temple the zealots light fire to it to bring it down on the Romans that have entered the temple. Uh, so the temple is destroyed. Um, <laughs> I just have to say that's kind of fucking metal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's like Solomon. Uh, 
or Samson, I mean, Samson. <laughs> now we don't know if that story's true. Um, apparently Titus felt awful about this, according to Josephus. Um, he did not want to destroy the temple. Uh, he blamed it on the zealots. So I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the story we have. Okay. But we know that, yeah, this, like we've touched on this before, right? This, this temple is not, it's not like the other temples. Like this is the temple, right? This is the temple. Okay. This is the religion. Without this, you can't have Judaism anymore. The whole religion freaking revolves around this freaking temple. Okay. And now that it's gone, what the hell do we do? But so, you know, this, the, the, the final, you know, stage of this war. So Jer- Jerusalem is completely destroyed. Uh, Josephus puts the numbers of survivors at around a hundred thousand. And he says that a million were killed or taken into slavery. Uh, so not many people survived this thing. It was, this was a nasty, nasty siege. And um, the city was basically destroyed. They had to rebuild it afterwards. Uh, Titus goes on to, build a triumphal arch back in Rome. You can go there and see it today. I have seen it. Uh, You can walk, you can walk through it and it shows the Roman soldiers like carrying off all the treasures of Judea. They have like this giant, like um, Torah and um, what's the candelabra thing called again? Uh, Um, uh, Menorah. 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 Yeah. The giant menorah and these Torahs and they have all these Jewish you know, slaves being led off into captivity. So you can still go and see it. It's still there. Um, so yeah, Titus has uh, destroyed the Jewish nation, basically. And they are never going to regain their self-government again. At least not until Israel, the modern state of Israel. Yeah, fascinating. And so, yeah, that is the Jewish war. So after this war, you know, the Jews are utterly destroyed. So yeah, that's the Jewish war. Yeah, no, it's so fascinating. Okay, so, I mean, maybe I was a little bit harsh on Josephus or Josephus or whoever you say his name. Like, you know, maybe he wasn't just a charlatan or whatever. Like like you said, he was walking a pretty narrow tightrope between, you know, pragmatically staying alive and telling his story and Well, yeah, I think if these... you use... Sorry to interrupt you. No, go ahead. <laughs> I was just <laughs> rambling. Now, I, I think it's really easy to judge Josephus and to even declare him a traitor and maybe even a coward. And I'm not sure if that's not even true. Like, that might be fair, even, um, to call him that. You know, why is he lying? Why is he making up these stories? Like, what really happened, you know? Now, in Josephus' defense, though, there's just a little bit more about this work and about him and his writing in general. And so this, this work is written in Greek. The Jewish War. And this is the second part of a larger work called The Antiquities. And The Antiquities are basically the history of the Jews. And this thing, this work, this Antiquities, has so many problems from a a rabbinical, like Jewish, uh, Jewish law standpoint that people have really called into question. Was this guy even educated? Did he even know about Jewish law? Because he's getting so many things wrong. Like, like he's way more educated than you know, the modern Jew is, but as far as like a real rabbi or something, like people really question if he even understood Jewish law. But so, but at the same time, he's wrote this seminal work that basically starts with the beginning of the Jews all the way up to the present point, you know, like, so he's made this incredible work and then he follows it up with this, this Jewish war. 
but so i have a question though like like the stuff that he got wrong about like jewish law and stuff like would that have been stuff that would have been considered like secret or something at the time like was he like not revealing secrets that people would have been mad had they been revealed or something or like i mean it's a really interesting question and i i don't know honestly enough about jewish law i don't know anything about it really to speak educated on that but we can we can make some kind of theories or assumptions or guesses on it and that Maybe he's presenting these things in a certain way for a reason. And it's wrong because he wants to portray it as something different than it is for some other reason, right? Sure. Like maybe so that it doesn't offend people or so that people look on them more favorably, you know, like so these things don't seem as ridiculous. It could be that kind of thing, right? I mean, it's like what we call like palatable nowadays, right? Like, yeah. And and this is this work is, is written in Greek and, and he did write another version of these two books, The Antiquities and the Jewish War, in Aramaic, which was the you know, the vernacular language of uh of the Jews at the time. Okay. But that work has not survived. Oh so, well it would be fascinating to fucking compare all these, I know, right? Like... I know. If we had that work, looking back on Josephus would be, it would be a revelation. Okay. Um there so, is yeah, some we thought. Don't, we don't know the whole story at all. Like, we only have this one version that he made for the Romans, and who fucking knows? So, like, yeah, geez, I'm intrigued. <laughs> I know. He is so complicated. And now, so after this after this war, you know, people were pissed at the Jews, you know? and Yeah, well, uh, I mean, this this is a bad look, right? Like, you could say <laughs> all of this yeah, shit. Yeah, they like... lost a whole fucking army. Like, they, like it was a, they lost the province. Like, um now i i well, didn't want to get it all into... went down like was just so wild and like with again with the zealots like we're i think that like we can say that we're probably pretty mad at them for... absolutely yeah and Being like such so, dicks. You know, the, people, <laughs> the people in society were mad at them too i mean the jewish in society I'm sure they were <laughs> yeah. if we're mad at about them reading the story imagine how people at the time felt so <laughs> i mean and just talking about like just, i just thought of this now i mean think of like islam right now which is just a tiny tiny percentage yeah, dude, of imagine what the rest of the fucking people <laughs> yeah dude for shit, real right? yeah. like no yeah that's a real, good point dude. right it really is like something to keep in mind when you because it you know no, this, for real like this this tradition that the jews have given to the world this is fundamental in western civ like yeah this dude. kind of uh, go ahead Oh, I was going to say, like, you you had said, like, well, maybe we could call, like, Josephus a coward or whatever. And, like, I was kind of thinking about, like, just that, like, language that we use, too. Like, there's there's a little bit of zealotry inherent in a lot of fucking, I don't want to say propaganda, but, like, you know, a lot of the ways that, like, we, like, motivational speaking and stuff like that. Like, you can hear a lot of these, like, ideas, right, that are... Because they're effective, like, for whatever reason. Sure. <laughs> like, they, they get y'all, like, like, don't be a coward. Let's burn our food so we don't, we have to fight, you know? Like, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right? yeah. They're playing on some base passion there, right? Yeah. So, I mean, watch out for that shit, everybody. <laughs> like, God, right? If, you know, the, the details change, but these same things are happening. You know, the French Revolution, it gets taken over by these radicals, and they start turning on each other, and it, and then it leads to a giant fuck all war, you know, Russian revolution. It's different, but similar where, you know, it starts as something very different and it gets taken in a very radical direction by these determined 
fanatics, you know, these these religious fanatics. And I would call the communists religious fanatics. Yeah, I, you know, I Just, think that the case that that's an interesting point. I think the case could be made, actually, because, it, yeah, because you're so entrenched in this like ideology, it's an ideological yeah, anytime you have like ideologies go into war, I could you could make the uh, uh, argument that that's a religion for sure. Well, yeah, and it's just like like modally they're very similar, sure, right? Sure, like, sure, sure. The end justifies the means, and there's going to be this utopian, you know, kingdom of God that's going to come after the Roman world or the yeah. dictatorship of well, the proletariat. Yeah. No, for sure, I guess that it's just like the state that replaces the religious class in that case okay yeah that makes sense yeah it's just different details but same kind of same shit, ideas different fucking same passions <laughs> yeah okay and the same flaws you, you you see the same faults coming to the forefront with these revolutionaries where they turn on each other or where the the most radical of the of the bunch come to power in this revolutionary environment it's very hard to restrain people like yeah. it's, it's it's hard to think clearly when well, and you get all these little fucking cults of personality forming and like oh yeah yeah it's just it and can... all these zealots they all had their own leader there's a bunch of names we could have used but you know they all had a charismatic crazy leader right or you or know, very I... determined uh you know why militant, is there um... not made like a historical fiction series about this of like like a how it sounds amazing <laughs> like all these zealot factions warring against each other <laughs> right like, that sounds wild anybody listening that can do this you should make it and i'll watch it <laughs> that does sound great dude that is kind of an untapped kind of like you know genre that could be fun like biblical era religious fanaticism yeah i mean i don't know though <laughs> now that when you when you see the way that you phrased that made it sound very unpalatable you yeah have said we that have differently. To, we have to yeah we'll have to shop that title <laughs> Some bad optics on that. <laughs> but anyway, so I so just I did want to originally talk about the second Jewish revolt because there is another one that happens a hundred years later. So after this one, so the temple is destroyed, but the religion continues. But it just has to kind of adapt. It has to kind of find a new a new mode, a new way to worship. And all these sects, all these different sects have a different idea on how to do it, right? Mm -hmm. One of these sects are the Christians, right? They're, they are directly coming out of this. Um, and in a lot of ways, this was kind of a, a boon for them it, that uh, all the old priestly authority was destroyed with the temple. So now the religion can go in a different direction without that old, you know, yeah, system of power, system of control. For sure. Uh, but, you know, one of the results is that you have all these different sects of Judaism that are all competing with each other for converts, right? And the Christians are one of them. They're competing mostly with the Pharisees. And these are the two big winners of this period. You know, the Pharisees go on to found modern Judaism and the Christians go on to obviously found Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so the temple... Um, where do we? Where does Muhammad come into this? Is it? Is he? Does he enter the picture a little bit later? Uh, Muhammad is like six hundred, oh, so seventh okay. century. Yeah. Jeez, I'm ignorant. Okay. <laughs> and we'll. I mean, I would love to do an episode on Muhammad. Um, oh yeah, I think and, we definitely should. And I really like the Muslim Islamic civilization. It's very much cut of the cloth of the Jewish civilization, like and Greek. It, it 
kind of the common combo of those two with some Christianity in there. And well, they kept a lot of the good shit going when it all fell apart elsewhere. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, but yeah, so like that kind like now that we've talked about a little bit more about the Jewish uh, civilization, now we've talked about the Greeks, we talked about the Romans, and now we've talked about the Jews, and it's really these three that kind of make this triangle of thought that form Western civilization and the traditions that that follow and not just Western civilization. I mean, obviously Islamic civilization is part of this too, which you could easily just put in there with Western civilization. Mm -hmm. That's a whole nother argument, but like, so this is a really um, important time in the history of Western civ of religious thought. And it's in this, this aftermath of this failed revolt, this failed attempt to regain their freedom well, that's what cost them the temple. That's what that's what led to the destruction of the religion. So it was almost like the Jews kind of did this to themselves in a way. Just they, like the Greeks, dude. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. They they destroyed themselves. Like they they did. It's this infighting that just you know we we saw it in the Maccabean revolt, we saw it in the Hasmonean civil wars, and then we see it all through the 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 revolts. Then there is a second revolt and this is a hundred years later, the Bar Kokhba revolt. And I, I originally wanted to talk about this, but we just don't have time, but this is actually an even bigger revolt. And Bar Kokhba is someone who is declared the Messiah during this revolt. And maybe we could do an episode on this. Yeah. It, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. But it ends in complete catastrophe. And um, after this war, the Romans didn't try and stamp out the Jews. They just tried to fucking put them in their place. After the Bar Kokhba revolt, um, they tried to commit genocide, and they almost did. I mean, they tried to destroy Judaism. They made it illegal. They uh, they changed the name of the province to uh, Palestine after their ancient enemies, the the Philistines. <laughs> to piss them off. That is so interesting. To, oh yeah, my God, they dude. outlawed yeah. the religion. They Jeez. they tried to utterly destroy them, and that's the start of the diaspora the Jewish diaspora. So maybe we should do a second revolt episode. Cause. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, I, mean, I kind of just summed it up. Yeah. But it, yeah, there, there is a lot more to it, but I kind of just summed it up. Yeah. So well, I mean, no, that's cool. I mean, we could always circle back and look at some of the intricacies in another time, but yeah. But yeah. So like the revolt of the, I mean, the result of these two revolts is that uh, the Jews lose their homeland and they are conquered people. And the, the Romans bring, you know, Josephus puts it, you know, anywhere, 100,000 of them back to Rome. So there's about 100,000 survivors um, from the siege, the siege alone. I mean, God knows how many people they took back in general. But, you know, I guess these these uh, Jewish slaves were very um, popular, I guess. You know, they'd make good mystics or good sex slaves. And, you know, so it's pretty depressing. It's uh, depressing. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah. And the second revolt's even worse. I mean, it's they literally tried to stamp out their religion. But, you know, so... Anyways, but, you know, so the Romans build this arch, this, this uh, something I wanted to touch on because I found this ironic. And the Romans went through all this this tr uh, trouble to stamp out their religion, to uh, get rid of these people forever. And they, you know, Titus's arch is still in Rome today. But when you go to Rome today and you look at it, it's surrounded by ruins. And the civilization that built that arch is gone. And it's been gone for a long fucking time. And this arch is marking and celebrating the destruction of the Jewish polity. And yet the Jews are still around and the Romans are not. Well, 
that's actually arguable. I mean, look at the Catholic Church. Just saying. <laughs> but... Well, I mean, these people weren't Catholic at the time, right? Of like, course That's not. even kind of more like <laughs> that even gets more into the argument that. Actually, yeah. no, maybe you're right. Yeah. Maybe that's making your argument even more. All right. Yeah. So here I got my St. <laughs> Augustine quote. All right. So um, this is according to Seneca. Now, we now we cannot find this in Seneca's writing. You know, Seneca's a, a Roman uh, writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but St. Augustine quotes Seneca and says about Seneca complaining, quote, that the conquered Jews have given laws to the conquerors. <laughs> <laughs> and if you think of the Catholics, shit. That's so funny. So, yeah, I just thought that was an interesting kind of irony with, with the arch of, of Titus. But so some other things uh, to talk about now, you know, um, so Judaism, now that the temple's gone, like the way that these these Pharisees, they the way that they replaced it was with the synagogue. So they said, we don't need the temple. We don't need the, the priestly caste anymore. What we're going to do is that we're going to have, we're going to make our own temple. And if we read the, the holy books in, in this space, we'll make it sacred and we'll create our own temple. And we don't need to have a priestly caste anymore. We don't need that. We can make our own way. Yeah, that's so that's that's basically what Jesus was talking about. He's like, fuck these people. You don't need them. You can do it by yourself. It's and pretty it, similar, right? That's why I think so, he was it, one of the Pharisees. Yeah, he wasn't saying I'm God, right? He's not saying I'm God. Worship me. No, he he had like he's a Jew, right? Yeah, like he, well, yeah. If you, I don't know. <laughs> God, I don't want all right, well, this is this that's is a, a controversial other, opinion. This is a yeah. whole other episode we could do, and I would I would love to hear people's opinions on this too. Obviously, super super complex um, history ideas religious philosophies that go into all of these. We're not trying to belittle anything that anybody thinks or, any, or believes or anything like that. We're, we are just trying to figure it out. So, <laughs> Yeah, like this is a historical kind of scholarly interpretation. <laughs> scholarly like, I, I, in quotes as we're drinking. In, in quote as I'm drinking my beer. <laughs> like I'm not giving you my personal opinion about religion because that like this, you right? Like I have I have my own opinions about all this stuff, but you know, it's still... It, the history is the history, right? And sure, sure, sure. I mean, I'm a little bit giving my opinions about it because I'm here for <laughs> commentary. So <laughs> you mentioned Seneca, and I wanted I wanted to like bring a little Seneca flavor because he, I mean, he, yeah, he he's he's got a lot of, he's got a lot of flavor. If you're into Stoicism, whatever. All right, so he says this: He suffers more than necessary. Who suffers before it is necessary? Oh, that is pretty good. Oh, man. Well, yeah, this has all been very, very interesting. Uh, Josephus and the story that he tells are, yeah, fascinating turning points. And um... yeah, and just like with Josephus, like if the other translation survived, how would we look on him? And would would that have cast his other work in suspicion to the people that kept it around for all these years? You know, I am going to speculate wildly and say that if we had all three, was it? It was three different versions? It's, I think it's just the two. I don't think oh, okay. he wrote in Latin. Oh, okay. I think it's just Greek and Aramaic. Okay. Well, maybe if we had the two, then we could kind of triangulate between them um, and kind of figure out what he was really trying to say. Yeah, it'd just be interesting. So he's clearly re- writing for a Roman audience in this Greek version, but it would be interesting to see what he was, would have said in the Aramaic version when he's writing to the Jewish audience. And I mean, if he if he was, I mean, whatever, if he was like, we don't know if he actually knew that much about it. Like you said, if he was actually as educated as he said, um, but 
he might have been able to like you know like if you're if you're really familiar with a language you can like use idioms and like turns of phrase to like kind of hide things within it like you were talking about like yeah the like sophocles version of mm-hmm. it uh, during whatever yeah during nazi germany that that version of antiquity it's the same thing but the subtlety in, in the language can really change how it hits the ear maybe is yeah. the way to say it i don't know like well, i said it's some... so early i'm not even drunk yet so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you gotta catch up dude. <laughs> now there is some thought now this is i've uh, just like got this from dr abramson from his lecture that um there has been people that have been let into the vatican archives that there's a whole big jewish history section in there or jewish writing or hebrew writing or aramaic writing that just has not been uh, available for study for hundreds Hmm. of years okay and and that's not just jewish writing there's all kinds of crazy stuff in there and um they they let the guy in they let some guy in in the 50s but they wouldn't let him take any photos or um bring any of the stuff out so he had to just copy everything he could by hand yeah I guess. that's how they, and they do, found I'm out all this sure. yeah yeah this new crazy stuff was discovered so who knows what's in there maybe they got a copy of it yeah. in there i mean it wouldn't be surprised me fascinating I mean, well maybe uh, who knows what will come to light when um as, as time reveals all things right <laughs> <laughs> now there is another funny note about this work the jewish war um well i guess this is more on josephus in general but uh, i there is a passage in the book that is about a paragraph long that describes Jesus basically as the Messiah and as the son of God. And he was the greatest man ever. And he came down to earth and blah, 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 period. Let's move on to the next chapter. Oh my God. So people, so this is one of the reasons this book has been so popular throughout history is is this. And like, this is pretty obviously been inserted by, you know, a very pious uh, scribe sometime later, <laughs> probably a hundred, hundred years later. Or so this was put in there because it's been, it's being quoted about a hundred years after he wrote it. This passage is being quoted and this passage exists. It's even in my copy. I it's in my copy and we don't know where it came from. It's definitely not from Josephus. So, you know, he plagiarizes, he borrows from all this stuff. And then people have like added into his work, their own like little things. Well, so like Josephus it, it is, didn't invent that game, right? <laughs> no, he <laughs> he was just good at playing just, it. <laughs> yeah, it's just such a complicated work, and it's just so fascinating. And there is one more thing. So um, I, I don't have the exact names here, but the, uh, at the, towards the end of his life, he's you know this big kind of scholar in Rome, and you know he's he knows the emperor, and he knows all these these uh, you know royal women, and he's very popular. And uh, by the way, his personal life was did not work out well for him at all. He what? had. <laughs> yes, he was married four different times. Uh, I guess his, his he was first wife left him. I think um, it, it was a mess. His personal life was a mess. But um, any anyways, you know, he, there there is a, a very prominent scholar who's also at this court who makes a scathing attack on the Jews, and Josephus writes this huge kind of response to it. Um, you know, a lot of anti Semitic works would go back and quote some of these attacks on the Jews. And I actually have one from Tacitus here that is hilarious. Um, Tacitus did write that Jewish people have an, quote, attitude of hostility and hatred towards all others. (laughs) 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 
So they were very popular after this revolt, and this one guy made this scathing attack on them. And well, Josephus very comes out. They were popular before the revolt because they were like, no, fuck you, you can't come to our parties and we don't want to go to yours. And like, right? Well, like, well there was that aspect, yes. So like, but that's they were where also you were starting cool. from. <laughs> okay, okay. But, it was like this like really old and mystical cool thing and it's kind of like kabbalah like uh this you know people that know jewish stuff were like cool it was like mystical and cool like it was you know uh, don't get me kind okay. of like a fad <laughs> uh <laughs> that's from dr abramson so i don't know if that's quite the the correct word if it was a fad but um well i mean you do see like these kind of trends in the ruling class as it comes to like all things fashion whatever like spirituality all of these things like look at fucking hollywood so yeah just saying <laughs> yeah so apparently it was something kind of like that and Wait, actually, I, yeah i guess are, on is, his sorry is hollywood a ruling class Jeez, i don't know that's oh, a God, troubling con- uh, let's talk oh, about God, that i don't want let's not think but about that, that yet. that's basically <laughs> what i just fucking said without realizing it so i mean i don't know man <laughs> that was scary sorry i'm so Shit, sorry i mean to parse that out i guess they would have to be right part of it at least anyway <laughs> i mean the, the amount of influence there ca- yeah anyways um <laughs> sorry anyways josephus uh but so yeah so he does make this you know so his work are, are, has been banned by a lot of uh orthodox jews who feel that he is a traitor at the same time this guy makes a sk- scathing attack on judaism and, and he steps out as the defender of it and he is the emperor's like friend you know Mm -hmm. this guy has a ton of clout you know and so he is the main apologist for the jews basically through almost the entire middle ages because of his defense of judaism and during antiquity you know and like so he's just such a complicated guy that you know i i think if you use empathy and try and put yourself in his shoes now how are you going to react during during these things like you you know he he did like rome he was a hellenistic jew he he did like the Western thought, Western culture, but yet, you know, he, he, he was a Jew and, and he wasn't going to let these people slander, you know, his people, you know, like that he had to defend them. Like, so it's just such a complicated p- position to be in. And, and obviously you're going to piss people off when you're taking such a nuanced approach to of something, course. right? Like, yeah, no, if you're pissing everybody off, it probably means you're telling the fucking truth <laughs> or at least some of it. Yeah, you're doing something that is not trying to appeal to just one audience. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, like, if you're pissing... That's what I meant. Like, if you're pissing yeah. all of the factions off, then maybe there's something about what you're saying that's important. I don't know. I always think that's interesting when, like, somebody says something and everybody gets mad about it. And I don't know. Yeah, it's it's just always so, like I always say, interesting to question people's motivations. Like, if you really want... We're, yeah, you really want to understand history or anything, you have to understand people too, right? Absolutely. And this, you know, this is one of the more enigmatic historians that we're going to talk about. And it's kind of why he's so fun. And and they have all these elements, you know, this guy has a personality. You know, we, we haven't seen too much personality from our history. I guess we kind of have. Hey, Caesar, but... don't. Hey. <laughs> 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 don't talk about Thucydides that way. I think there's a lot of personality in it. <laughs> don't miss our Thucydides episode, by the way, everybody. I know it's long. It's very fun, though. As a side That's note, a good one. Uh, sure, I asked our dad if he had listened to it. 
and he made this noise. He was like, <laughs> I haven't gotten around to it yet. And I was like, oh, no, you don't have to feel obligated. I was just curious. <laughs> no, I, I think I think he has caught up. I think I made him listen to it by now. Shout out to you, Dad, if you're listening. <laughs> That's very sad, actually. You should cut that out. I make no promises. <laughs> <laughs> well, word, dude. I think we got through most of the cool stuff. And um, yeah, I think that hopefully this is kind of a good introduction to just kind of not only Jewish history, but Christian history and, and Islamic history and just kind of religious history as far as we know it. And Sure, sure. I mean, in terms of like, you know, Western monotheism and stuff like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, fascinating stuff. Like I didn't, you know, you these things are still so important in today's world that like going back and understanding them, it seems so crucial, but we don't fucking do it. Like, I don't know. I man. know. It's disappointing to me. Um, well, that's but why people we're still have opinions on all everything. right? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know what they say about opinions. <laughs> we all have them and, and we're all entitled to our opinions. Right. But like, absolutely. Yeah. We're also, and you should also listen to other people's opinions because they're entitled to theirs. And I don't know. Fuck, j- don't, uh, I think what we've learned from looking at this story today is the degree to which, I don't want to say zealotry because that's so specific, but like. Yeah, fanaticism, fanatic- radicalism. Fanaticism, extremism, radicalism, like, and just like rigidity in thought. Yeah, it can be so problematic and it can really work against the thing that got you there in the first place. Right. Like the, the idea that you were trying to get all zealot about the the zealotry, the zealotry w- could work against that very idea that got you there in the first place is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so. I mean, and yeah, with our other revolutions. And I do I do think it's accurate to, to put this in this revolutionary category, but you compare this to the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, and you know it, it's it seems to be that you know this. Okay, this is my opinion here. This I'm I'm making an opinion statement here that you know this is a problem with with human nature here, and that when you have a ideology that has no room for compromise, where your a priori is that you're right and that the other people are bad, and it's us against them. You're with us or you're against them, uh, against us, right? Yeah, you're there's either, really no you're in between on this team or on that team, you know? Like, yeah, pick a side. And there's the good guys and there's the bad guys. And you've got a choice. You can be a good guy or a bad guy. And um, yeah, we don't really care what you have to say. We don't really care about your opinion. You know, for the Russian, uh, you know, communists, this was scientific. You know, this was uh, this was all inevitable. This is paleographic that the laws of science have made this communist revolution inevitable. Therefore, we are the wheels of history. We are the engine of progress. We are what is moving the human race forward. And it turned out really well for everybody. Oh, it was great. <laughs> I mean, it just, they left out the firing squads and the, the, the you know, gulags and the, the refugees and cool everything. Cool ideas. But... What is it? Great idea, poor execution. I'm so sorry. That's a very tasteless humor. That was humor. in poor taste. I'm so yeah. sorry. Maybe you should cut that out. I am offended. <laughs> All the victims of communism. No, dude, no. I mean, but no, for real. Like, there, it was, it's really fucking sad and shitty. Like, 
I know. Well, it's the best best intentions, right? Like we're sure. going to get rid of the Romans. We're going to we have this great culture. We have a God that loves us and we're his chosen people and all. But, you know, this is a test, right? This is a test. And everything's been leading up to this, right? This is inevitable. And this, you know, if it doesn't happen, you know, then the world's just going to end and, you know, we're going to kick it in the next world, right? Like, so... It's, it's so fucking... In, in some ways, it's like, it's so... I don't know. You look at some of know, kind of recent history with, like, cults and stuff like that, like, where it's like the cult leader will say, like, okay, well, if this version of reality doesn't pan out for me and everybody yeah. that's following me, then we're all just going to kill ourselves and say, fuck it. Yeah. And like, I mean, that's like Hitler did that, right? I, yeah. I mean, well, he can with his, he, with his inner circle. Yeah. I they, mean, he yeah. took the whole nation down with him. Too. Well, they were fucking cowards from the, don't get me started on those assholes. Like, we're we're going to get to them eventually. We're going to get to them eventually. <laughs> we will get to them. Obviously. No, there's no shortage of investigations into that portion of history. Though. No, so, there's not. I mean, yeah. It's not like there's a huge demand for you and I to be doing it. But, like, interesting it's interesting stuff, stuff obviously. Yeah. I, yeah, I've had a few people ask me if, if I'm going to do uh, World War II stuff. Oh, and yeah, we're oh, obviously yeah. going to yeah. talk about World War II, everybody. Yeah. Jeez, who can who can not talk about it? It's interesting. But yeah. But, and just a little bit more on the, on the Jews. I forget where we were, but... Um, <laughs> It's just I, I like talking about this stuff because most people don't know anything about the Jews, right? Like, um, well, okay. and this is Roman history, yeah, right? No, like, okay, this so is. I'm curious though. Okay, so if what you're the story that you just told me, it seems really different than. Okay, so I'm no, I'm just curious. Like, why are there all these like conspiracies and shit? Like, where people are like, "Oh, the Jews have always been running the world," and like, I mean. Can you can you speak to that from like a historical standpoint? Like, is like what the fuck? Like, I'm trying yeah, I, I'm trying to figure it out. Like, I think that's kind of like modern anti-Semitism is 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 modern, but it's it's based off of kind of these middle age kind of notions. And now, my opinion on this is basically that um, it really just comes down to literacy. And so, like the Pharisees, the guys that inherited the religion, or that you know that won the religious struggle and, and preserved it. Uh, they have this huge emphasis on, on literacy and you cannot become an adult in modern Judaism without reading from the Torah in Hebrew. So right there alone to become an adult, you have to be able to read. Okay. And I think you also had to be a man for a long time too. just want to say <laughs> to do this thing. You might have been, yeah. I think it it wasn't exactly a um, it's pretty chauvinistic religion, but and well, so during the Middle Ages, you know, uh, most of Europe is literate, probably ninety five percent, maybe more. You know, like it. Um, the only people that are are literate are the monks, this like the kind of scribe monk people, and the aristocracy the the nobles you know so that's it you know i guess there's probably a lot of burgers and stuff as the middle class started to rise and the the bourgeoisie started to become a thing i'm sure they were literate too but uh, but the jews were kind of a part of that bourgeoisie they they were these these other people that um well they had you know, the advantage of fucking literacy which is a huge well, yeah. advantage right it's like, a massive education massive is advantage. a fucking huge advantage 
it just gives you a lot advantage in, in every avenue of business and every kind of statecraft, like any kind of competitive edge. And, and when you have an advantage like that, well, guess what? You're going to use it, right? So if you're surrounded with all these fucking illiterate peasants, you know, I, I maybe you're going to take advantage of them and make, you know, so like, it, and, and there's other parts too. Like, it's not just the literacy. It's also that, you know, a lot of uh, parts of Europe and the Middle East and the Ottoman Empire and stuff, the the peasantry, um, you know, they are they are tied to the land, but you couldn't be a farmer if you were a Jew in a lot of places because you couldn't have any land. So okay. you had to live in the city. So you weren't even allowed to be a peasant. <laughs> you weren't allowed to be a peasant. No, that's exactly right. You weren't allowed to be a peasant. And so in places in the Ottoman Empire, like they looked down on the merchant class really heavily. I think Japan was similar. Like the merchant class was the lowest class. The farmer was like a noble kind of middle ground. Well, you like could see really why hard. the fucking people in power would want it to be that way, though, too, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> it makes sense. Anyway, like total sense. Yeah, so if you're not going to let these people own any land, or you're not going to let them be peasants, what did they? They don't really have anything else to do, so they became businessmen. And a lot of them, like the early church, you know, they have uh, things against usury in the church. And usury is defined as like charging interest on a loan. Exactly. Okay. And so, you know, the Vatican had all this money the popes had all these money, but uh, they were not allowed to loan it out. So they just had Jewish bankers do it for them, you know? So. Okay. Outsourcing this, the sin. <laughs> outsourcing the sin. Exactly. Exactly. And, but these guys, even then they didn't last through the whole middle ages. They got, you replaced by the Italian bankers and those great families that yeah, came in. There. The like, Medici, oh, another fascinating story there. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Borgias and the Medici. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the word bank, banca, is a, a marble counter where you would drop your coin on to see how it sounded, see if it was, uh, if it was pure or not. All kinds of romantic <laughs> shit there, right? I mean, well, I mean, not to mention like all of the, all of the, fascinating like artistic projects that came out of, i i don't know we, we can talk about that another time but yeah but yeah as far as anti-semitism goes this is kind of the start of it but the ancient world is different because everybody just hates everybody right yeah and i think that's still kind of true <laughs> unfortunately i think we're still kind of trying to figure out like like maybe uh, maybe it's cool if your neighbor does shit a little bit differently like maybe it's better not to burn the fucking food Maybe we should just all chill the fuck out. Like, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> well, and a lot of people will look at the Jewish nation or Jewish people and say, you know, how come they're so successful and they don't have a country and they're always being persecuted? So, like, reading? why are... <laughs> I, right? That's a pretty good reason, right? <laughs> Is it just reading? Is that the secret? Just, But, like, yeah, it's kind of fascinating, though, because, I don't know, I, there's a big difference between, like, I don't know the, the notion of like, oh, it doesn't matter. This this life is all nothing. It's all about the next life or whatever. Yeah, and yeah, then supernaturalism. Yeah, and then actually like saying like, okay, well, in order, I don't know, man. I don't know. I I feel like I hear a lot of people saying things like, well, I don't know whether or not heaven and hell is real, but I'll hedge my bets. And, like, that kind of makes sense. But, like, when you really think about it, too, like, the real bet you should hedge is, like, trying to live well in this world. Because this is where you for sure are right now. And you don't know what's going to happen next. So, 
that's what that seems like a good thing to focus Very logical. on. Very yeah. right? logical. Like, yeah. And yeah, I'm not saying that like, oh, whatever, like be a dick just to enjoy life. No, that's then that's actually like a complete misrepresentation of what like hedonism is about anyway. Not to get too into other philosophies, but like maybe it's okay to fucking enjoy your life. We don't have to be zealots. We don't have to be Puritans to be good, right? Like, I mean, I don't think so. That's just my idea, my personal uh, opinion. But I, I feel like but... there's so much of that, though. Like, it, you have to, like, the idea that you have to sacrifice yourself, that you have to sacrifice your own happiness, that you have to sacrifice all of this other stuff for these ideals that may or may not even be like real things in the first place i don't know just saying <laughs> the idea of faith is by itself illogical right like it's to try and get your head around it logically it just doesn't quite like you can kind of interface but like yeah well and that's the mystery of it and that's why it's so appealing right like yeah absolutely and if, but if somebody is trying to use that mystery to control you I mean, which it's a classic tactic, right? I mean, sure. Yeah, just uh, keep keep an eye out for that. That's all. Yeah, and at least my personal opinion, and I don't know if this is relevant today or not. If there's modern zealots out there today that there's one hundred percent are, my friend. I feel like yeah, that want to take us all on some kind of crazy ride with them because they think they're right. Well, you know, it's just. That's something that it's not a new idea. It's a it's a time tested idea, and it uh, it's tested pretty poorly most of the sure. time. So hell yeah, and I don't think it's there's anything wrong with being the person that says maybe we shouldn't burn the fucking food. Maybe we shouldn't burn all of our books. <laughs> for real, dude. Let's let, yeah. let's not burn our books or our fucking food, everybody. <laughs> like, yeah, and that's kind of yeah. I mean, I, Edmund Burke, one of my favorite philosophers, has a you know big kind of debate with uh, Rousseau who is dead at the time but um, he's de- <laughs> he's debating his friend who keeps invoking Rousseau um, and so he is essentially debating Rousseau um, okay. even though Rousseau is dead and can't defend himself but you know this idea that if if, uh, if the if the castle is rotten then you should tear it down and start over well Burke said well wait a minute maybe not maybe the whole thing isn't rotten Maybe the foundations are still secure. You don't need to burn everything down. You can just get rid of the rot and keep the foundation. It's like with these revolutionaries, you know, it, it's you get into these, um, these kind of fantastical ideas that you can reshape the world to your desire and the, all the passion of the moment, all, all the, the the violence and the, everything that has happened to, to justify it. I think it just makes you even more rigid and. And makes yeah. it even harder to come down, like from your hill, and like the, the you get so like your ego gets so involved in it, right? Like you start to identify so closely with these yeah. ideas and these, like you know, I am the revolution, or like you know, like fuck, like, <laughs> and then then it, it becomes about something completely different than what it started, and exactly, yeah, it's like almost hijacked in, in a way, and it, yeah. And it just makes you wonder with this story. Now, if the Zalons hadn't burned all the food and they hadn't been so fucking incompetent and fighting each other all the time and they had actually united and maybe called in some allies, maybe like the Persians or the Greeks or somebody, the Egyptians to come help them, they might have been able to fend them off, you know, but they uh, they couldn't 
they couldn't stop fighting each other for longer than a few days. Well, they couldn't. You know, like, they couldn't step back and like look at the big fucking picture because I think that that's. Yeah. I think that that is really what the problem with those types of philosophies are, is that you can't step back and look at the big picture because you're so fucking entrenched in this like yeah. narrow worldview. Yeah, and um, not to bring everything back to our modern day, but Jesus, you look at our country today and you see a lot of infighting and what is it for? Like what the hell is even the purpose of most of this? It just seems like ego and pissing contests. Well, and to what extent are we being, (laughs) I mean, uh, don't get me started, but yeah, I I think that there's a lot of different ways that you can use technology to influence like the way that people think. Um, This is obviously a topic that we could, do at least like seven hours of conversation on (laughs) absolutely like probably right now without any prep (laughs) um but yeah so yeah there's all kinds of ways that people are being swayed and their passions are being played on like this is the thing with these rigid ideologies is that they play on what is in some ways what's the most best and beautiful about people is like this this passion for like these ideals right like this like yeah way that we can be motivated for something that's bigger than ourselves and the people that are able to take that aspect of humanity and use it to manipulate individuals um this if i don't really have like a strong belief in like notions of good and evil because i think that's so complex but like if I were to define evil, I would probably put it somewhere close to that. Yeah, no, I would agree. It's um, I've always thought of evil as something that tries to masquerade as good. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's in that's... the Bible a bunch of times, right? Probably. <laughs> probably. But it's also yeah. not an original idea. Like that's yeah, one hundred percent for sure. Right? That's like, like the highest form of evil, right? Because then you want to lead the good people astray. Oh my god, like... I can't wait to talk about Gnosticism with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well fuck yeah and like the gnostics are a great playoff of this kind of madness because they are one of these crazy sects that come out of this right you know what would be fucking dope is to do a fucking joint one where, where like take a look at it from a historical standpoint and then take a look at it from like a theological or spiritual standpoint yeah that would be sweet dude well yeah i think that's basically everything we had to talk about with I would, Josephus. it's not everything we have to talk about but we've been talking for like long enough <laughs> So. Yeah, this conversation could go on for quite a while. <laughs> and I would love to hear what you guys like, uh, you know, what you think about the Jewish war and what you think about Josephus. You know, yeah. Very complicated historical uh, figure. Yeah, I know we touched on a lot of kind of complex issues in this one and like maybe some stuff that like feels a little bit, I don't know, controversial or like, I don't know. But I think, you know, if you look at it from like kind of a objective standpoint, you kind of step back and just try to absorb the information without any of the baggage that might be attached to all of these different labels. Like, like we talked about, this stuff is still so relevant today. So it's so fascinating. Yeah. It it is kind of difficult to separate the baggage from the history and all the controversy. Like some people claim that Judea never even existed. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of revisionist thought on the Jews and because of kind of what has happened throughout the years, a lot of people have tried to justify it and justify all these crimes. Um, so there is uh, a lot of 
scholarship that is anti-Jewish and it is interesting too. But um, I think what I've tried to do is just give an honest historical opinion on or, you know, narrative for the Jewish wars and for the ancient state of Judea. And hopefully I haven't offended anybody because that was not the intention. But Oh, yeah, um, no, absolutely not. Like we do not want to offend anybody. We want to make you think about shit, but we don't want to like piss you off. And if we do piss you off, like, you know, let us know. Like we are rational people we want to fucking talk about this stuff so please don't ever hesitate to reach out yeah if we get something wrong shit just let me like tell me what i got wrong and um you know i'm not gonna shrink from that or anything so yeah definitely and and i do think that you did a pretty good job of like presenting this information in what felt to me a pretty unbiased way i mean there are good things and there are bad things and shit the way it played out was not great but we can yeah. hopefully learn a lot from it so yeah and josephus is just one of those guys in history that is really hard to put your finger on him yeah. and it's just a really unique and and fun guy to talk about so i'm glad that we got to do an episode on him yeah well fuck yeah dude this has been super interesting i hope everybody enjoyed listening to this episode of ad hoc history your body grows big. The mind must flower. It's great to learn. Cause knowledge is power. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. E-I-O.